invariably there is childhood trauma. There is an adverse or a number of adverse experiences that happen early in life. And although that can sound like a very liberal view or or kind of almost minimising the offender in that, it doesn't excuse offending, but it is really important that in terms of addressing offending that we recognise that evidence says punishment in itself doesn't change behaviour. Prison Governor Susie Richardson and I'm news editor of Express, Fiona Potany. It's been a tumultuous year at the prison. In June 2020, Governor Nick Cameron stepped down following a row with government. The loss came at a critical time, in the middle of a pandemic, when prisoners were being forced to spend more time in their cells and less time on training and education activities due to distancing issues. In recent weeks, there have been complaints about prisoners being locked up for too long again. But this time the problem isn't COVID, it's staffing. A shortage of prison officers means that wings of the prison are being put on a lockdown for one day each per week. Those recruitment problems have, at least in part, been driven by low morale in the workforce. It's an additional challenge coming at an already tricky time, with the prison trying to balance budget cuts imposed by government while seeing through a new programme which it's hoped will significantly slash reoffending. Steering the ship for six months now has been new governor Susie Richardson. Although she has risen up the ranks, having previously been deputy governor in Winchester, she didn't always know prisons were where she would end up. While studying for a degree in psychology and criminology, she started mentoring an ex-offender who re-offended and went back to prison. But they kept in close contact, even later going on to meet each other's families. What she says she learnt from that process was that offenders often have what she describes as a formulaic background, one filled with trauma and hardship. Undoing those difficulties and providing support when they come out of prison are the key tenets of the Seven Pathways model she would like to introduce in Jersey. In a wide-ranging interview, I started by asking her about the types of backgrounds offenders come from. There's obviously lots of different types of offences and the route into crime for different types of offences and offending is different. But um, invariably there is childhood trauma, there is an adverse or a number of adverse experiences that happen early in life. And although that can sound like a very liberal view or or kind of almost minimising the offender in that, it doesn't excuse offending, but it is really important that in terms of addressing offending that we recognise that evidence says punishment in itself doesn't change behaviour. It's got really important outcomes and having people in custody where they can't commit further offences is really important. But if we don't use that time to really understand the root cause and what's going on for that individual, then we're not going to change that risk ready for when they are inevitably released. So it sounds like that fits in quite neatly to what you're looking at in terms of the seven pathways. Would you just be able to explain what Jersey's journey will be with regards to that? Identifying the seven um, pathways for reducing reoffending isn't new work. It's um, it's something that is recognised in different... Um, it, it's the basis of a strategy in lots of countries in the world and uh, and seven certainly the UK refers to seven pathways and actually there was a review of prison and probation in Jersey that predates um, me predates this position even being advertised um, in December 2019 that recognized that 
that um, although so much is good in Jersey and the conditions are safe and decent and secure, uh, mostly, um, the, the focus around those seven pathways was underdeveloped. And these pathways, so that's accommodation, um, looking at education, employment and training, mental and physical health, substance misuse, working with children and their family, the wider family, finance, benefit and debt, and attitudes and thinking and behaviour. What the evidence tells us is if we get all of those seven pathways right, the chance of somebody coming back to prison is much lower. And it also gives us a structure to really focus everything we do and making sure we are making best use of public money, we are making best use of prisoner time and resources, and checking that um, we don't end up doing nice-to-dos or um, sometimes there's a risk that we might... um, support an individual to uh, do another degree or do something which, although interesting and useful, might not be linked directly to reducing their risk. And so by having a framework that is consistent across prison and probation, it means that we can start to intervene and have some impact and and working towards some outcomes from the very day that the individual um, comes into the criminal justice system from the day that they uh, the, that we start to that court, that reports are generated for the court from the initial assessment that's done by probation instead of us um, having two totally different services where offenders have to kind of navigate through our services working very closely with Mike Cutland head of probation here in, in Jersey and the team there to make sure that we have entirely consistent approaches across both services for the seven pathways uh, and that we wrap those services around the offender um, rather than getting the offender to kind of navigate our services. And that makes it a lot more efficient. It reduces the need for duplication. And it also means that we can can really build into the OneGov opportunity, looking at all the different departments that already exist on this island and are already paid for, Um, and all the different specialists that we have available to us and making sure that their interventions and their work are channeled along the pathways as well so that we're capitalising on all the experience and knowledge around health that already exists on the island instead of uh, duplicating that in our own small way inside the prison, making sure we're tapping into all that the Department of Health offers and the same with um, something like... um, substance misuse, making sure we're tucking into the services that already exist, and education as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's the strategy. So if we can just pause and kind of look at each of those elements in turn and what, what changes might be brought about, perhaps you could tell us, for example, with accommodation, what the process is now and what you'd like it to look like under the Pathways model. Absolutely. So, I mean, accommodation is a really good example, and we all know that accommodation in Jersey is tricky for for anybody. And um, wanting to make sure that the resources follow the risk. So what we can't have is prison providing a fast-track opportunity to get accommodation on the island, or that there's a queue jumping, etc., But what we also can't have is a high-risk offender being released into the community uh, to sleep rough where um, 
they have not got the supervision, have not got the ba- their basic needs met in order that they can realistically go on to address their health, substance misuse uh, and look for employment. And has that been an issue before, offenders not having accommodation? Um, yes, it is challenging. In fact, interestingly, when I spoke to um, other providers and so speaking to probation officers about what keeps them awake at night, um, a number of them said finding accommodation for high-risk offenders. And, um, and it can't be for a probation officer to lose sleep at night. We have to have an island strategy that actually resolves these things. But everything we've asked for in terms of help, across government and across other agencies has been forthcoming and I'm only six months into my time here in Jersey but my observation so far is that it's an island that absolutely wants to get re-offending uh, rates down and, uh, and resettle offenders well and is prepared to invest in it and I had a really interesting meeting just this morning with the Minister for Housing and there is a real commitment to getting this right and working with the housing providers to ensure that um, there's not queue jumping, but that we can manage that risk effectively. So how how might that look? How might that be done? Would it be a case of having dedicated uh, specialist accommodation ready for someone to make the transition into the community? Potentially, yes. And this is a really, we're really early in the accommodation pathway. I think it's been fairly, it feels like it's been fairly scattergun in the past. Um, And so... um, we're due to have a meeting, and that was the outcome from today, really, with Andiam Homes, with probation, with our service. Uh, they've already got their pathways um, for social housing here in Jersey and making sure that those pathways really cater for um, offenders as well and that we understand um, which tier someone would come into. So, um, so in terms of what will that look like, there's quite a lot of work still to be done around the accommodation pathway. If we move on to a, an incredibly important one, education and training, as well as health, you mentioned the prison wanting to reduce um, duplication. What does that mean? Does that mean no longer having in-prison things and using kind of, say, health resources from the, the hospital, for example? Yeah, so we're ha- we've got a review of health at the moment to make sure that we've got equivalence of care, but really to making sure that our health model um, draws on the literature around what works to reduce reoffending. Um, so at the moment we have um, prison officers who are nurses in the prison um, and just reviewing how that model works in terms of, um, at the moment that's for primary and secondary care for physical health and often requires drawing on experts to come in for mental health. Um, but we also see assessments, quite a lot of money spent on assessments for the court for mental health and where the report doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the court or maybe the defence, looking at how we can get that sharing of information. So not only is that assessment useful in helping the court reach their decision, but could be useful in us actually intervening and having multidisciplinary reviews. Um, making sure that health are literally at that table and that the prisoner's in the room as well. And we talk about, okay, we know where we are, we know what sentence you've got, now how are we going to use this time to address the underlying issue? Um, You talked about education, employment and training. We seem to have a a brilliant provision under customer and local services with the Back to Work programme. And they have, there's real will and enthusiasm to work with the prison 
but that until now has been towards the end of the sentence. It's just the model that was in existence in the prison. But as soon as we kind of open the door, um, they've really embraced the opportunity. They've come up to the prison. There's a real enthusiasm for doing things differently. So rather than us writing our own CV writing workshops and running our own um, courses around that or inter interview techniques and preparing um, prisoners for employment in that way, the, making sure that we're pulling in the departments that already do that stuff. And not only is that important to reduce duplication, it also means that prisoners aren't just accessing prison staff, they're feeling like citizens, they're already beginning that transition um, of accessing all of the services in custody that would be open to them if they were citizens out in the community. Recently there have been challenges around some of the education um, in the prison. We've been told that there have been some staff departing. Are you able to explain whether that's impacted the services that have been offered? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a number of things that have impacted the services, not least COVID. Um, prisons aren't really designed for social distancing. Um, and as with every organisation, we've had to reduce what we do in order to support distancing and reduce the risk of contamination between wings. Um, and the prison's done brilliantly in managing COVID. It really has. And, um, and it's a credit to the people that were there when I got there. It's been really well managed. Um, but we have also um, lost some staff in that time. And I think, as in any other industry, people are reviewing their life, their purpose, and, and what they want life to look like post-COVID. So um, we have got some recruitment campaigns running at the moment, but we've also been very careful not just to recruit what we've always had and to replace like for like. This is our opportunity to review the operating model, review the skills that we need our staff to have, and making sure, that, again, that the model is as efficient as it can be and um, where there are opportunities to pull in other departments, redeploying our resource um, to achieve other bits of work that we might not previously have got to. Do you have a target for reducing headcount? Um, not specifically around headcount, but we do have a, a budget reduction. Um, so there was a reduction this year, um, which has been managed through vacancies, and we've got a further um, reduction to make next year. But um, we, what we want to do is, rather than just hold vacancies where they emerge, redesigning the target operating model so that we've got a plan structure that we can afford so that um, we can recruit entirely to that model, knowing it's affordable and we don't have to hold ad hoc vacancies. What are the size of the reductions that you're having to achieve? Yeah, so the reduction for uh, 2021 was £420,000 um, and, um, and the reduction for next year is planned for £315,000. So that's a combined 735. Um, again, with vacancies, we don't expect to have to make any uh, redundancies because we've already um, more than saved that so um, it's just about redesigning the model and then actually being in a position to recruit to a number of those roles. Are you on track to make those savings at the moment? How, how far are we towards that target? Yeah the number of vacancies that we have mean that um, that uh, um, yeah that we're, we're not concerned about finances this year or next year and we're working really well with the staff on a 
the staff on the ground floor to make sure that we really understand um, what we're doing and how we make those decisions so that we don't have any unintended consequences. And I genuinely believe that we'll have a better service um, even after those reductions. And actually, a lot of that is about really aligning management um, resource. Uh, so we, would we will have a very efficient management structure, very lean, um, in order that um, we don't undermine outcomes, the face-to-face -face interactions, which is where the real outcomes are for offenders. So, I mean, obviously, this is a, a long-term vision to make a more efficient service, but naturally, when there's a process of transition and change, um, there can be teething issues with that, as we've uh, as we've heard recently. Um, currently, due to some of the staffing issues with prison officers, we're on sort of a rotational daily lockdown with different wings. What what has been the impact of that on on prisoners? Have you had any kind of concerns around mental health, for example, reported to you? Yeah, so we know that locking prisoners up for longer isn't good for mental health. The regime here in Lemoy is outstanding. The amount of hours that prisoners already have out of cells and the access to activities um, is certainly hours out of cell. It is very good. And activities, as I say, a bit curtailed more through COVID than through staffing. Um, but um, there is a risk, absolutely, if prisoners are in cells for longer. So there's a number of things that we've done to mitigate that. Some prisoners won't feel any impact at all of the restrictions because if they're doing meaningful work off the wing, they'll still be going off to work as they always did. Um, if they're having interventions or one-to-one -one work or people that need to um, access them on the wing, um, then that's all still available. We've moved some of the sessions around for visits and for education to make sure prisoners can still access exactly what they need to. And some prisoners really thrive. I think some of its personality, uh, an introvert, might be much happier with more time to themselves. They've got all sorts of resources they can access both on um, IT in their cells and also books and, um, and learning materials that they can, with that predictability, we don't have to do ad hoc lockdown because we've got a planned rotation. So prisoners can really prepare for that day and make sure they make good use of it. There are a few prisoners that it just won't suit very well. And generally, they're on an additional support plan anyway. And part of their support plan can include them coming out. Um, it might include them sitting on a one-to-one, -one, talking to a trained prisoner to listen to them, um, or coming out to do a number of tasks on the wing um, that supports them. So um, we're lucky in such a small prison with 150 prisoners, the staff know the individuals very well and are able to put that really individual support in place to make sure that um, nobody's adversely affected mm. by it. Uh, in advance of um, that regime being put in place to try and manage some of the staffing issues, what was um, the overtime situation like? Did that cause a significant bill, for example, at a moment when you're trying to achieve savings? It did, yeah. Overtime's really expensive. Um, and yes, it did, but... Uh, but it didn't cost more than the vacancies. Um, so certainly um, prison officers, um, we backfilled to cover all of the staffing areas with overtime. Um, that was less easy with some of the teachers and vocational trainers, um, so some of the activities areas. And those staff have just done a brilliant job, really, at being really flexible. And in, on occasion, we've asked prison officers to go and do some of those roles where they've got the skill set. But um, 
it's not so much the financial position because like, like I say we had the vacancies to pay for that um, it's more that staff were working lots of hours um, and um, it's really important that, that prison officers and staff have time away from prison. It's not a normal environment to spend all your time in and most have got families and friends to spend time with as well. So it felt like a much healthier balance instead of constantly asking staff to come in and do overtime. I think that's that's something I'd like to reflect on a bit in a moment. I was wondering, can you tell us what the, what the cost of that overtime bill was? I can't. I don't have that in front of me. Um, uh, and it, it's varied from month to month. But certainly in the summer, it was a, it was a high bill. And our colleagues did really well to um, staff the prison, make sure um, that we didn't have to do any knee-jerk changes. It gave us time to really um, plan for the reduction in regime. Um, and it's a temporary fix. We've got a recruitment campaign running at the moment for prison officers, um, and and nobody ever wants to run a prison on overtime. So again, getting that affordable model where uh, prison officers can just work their shift pattern um, and have a bit more predictability over it. I know that um, particularly after COVID, which was a stressful year for everyone across all sectors, um, it, it was mentioned in the previous annual report that there were some morale issues among the prison workforce. What's being done at the moment to try and help the the workers themselves um, with their mental health? Yeah, so um, there's a number of initiatives for mental health, um, but there's no, and some of them across government and and all sorts of wellbeing um, support that's being put in place, um, certainly for, um, but it's in its early days, really, a kind of, there's no suggestion of mental health impact for the staff but morale certainly I think some of that has come from a change in leadership Um, and not only did the staff lose their governor but they lost their long-standing and highly respected deputy governor who retired so the timing of that um, and a couple of people that just naturally came up for retirement some really good role models who'd been there a long time um, so, but in terms of morale, there's all sorts of things. We work really closely with the union, who look after their members very well. Um, we've got a socials committee who are just kind of really gathering momentum. We've got um, an event in December for staff. We've got amazing new facilities that are being built, and anyone that's driven uh, past that part of the island will see the investment in the infrastructure. And most of that is around staff facilities. Um, it's kind of non-prisoner stuff that's being invested in at the moment. Um, and I think some of it is the post-COVID stuff, not being able to socialise out of work, not being able to do some of the events that, that the prison traditionally had. But we look forward to all of those getting back on the agenda as well. You mentioned there um, a lot of the improvements underway at the prison. Can you just tell us a bit more about the buildings and how they will help the service achieve its goals? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, the infrastructure of the prison is, uh, or certainly will be, amazing. Um, A number of the wings, all of the wings, uh, old wings, have been replaced with new state-of-the-art wings. Um, And that really supports that safe, decent, secure regime that I describe in the prison. There are still, the old wings are standing in the middle of the prison. Some of them were used for exercises with uh, fire and rescue a couple of years ago. So they really literally are burnt out and quite an eyesore. But we look forward to them coming down early next year. 
Um, and then it's the, the office accommodation and the infrastructure um, that is being replaced at the front of the prison at the moment, which we call phase six. Um, and then the next um, part after that um, will also be on the external perimeter um, with some uh, accommodation for prisoners so that we can support some of the outworking and flexible working around prisoners who are suitably risk assessed to work outside the prison as well. But the evidence is really clear that when you have safe, decent accommodation um, and it's light and it's good lines of sight and there's not hidden corners and alleyways, um, that the um, safety data really backs up um, the difference. And it is um, it predates me, it absolutely does, but um, there's real evidence uh, of that investment leading to a much safer prison where assaults on staff and prisoners are uh, very unusual. In recent years we've had a, a, an older population in there, perhaps um, some of it as a result of kind of historic offences now coming to the fore. How has the prison adapted to um, deal with that? Yeah, um, the accessibility of the wing of the wings is excellent and because they're modern wings they're all built to a modern legal specification which includes lifts um, so prisoners can access all areas some of the um, kind of ancillary buildings that are yet to be replaced so classrooms um, for example are harder to access so we have to um, kind of move activities around if we've got a, a prisoner with mobility issues or a specific physical disability um, but again as we um, have unit by unit replacement that accessibility and the flexibility um, in how we use that space uh, improves all the time. Just to move back to the topic of offender management upon their departure from prison and uh, re-offending rates, I think the, the current rates are around 40% or so. Do you have a target in mind as to what you want to see that brought down to and over what period? Um, that's a really good question. And actually the data around reducing re-offending is very hard to um, understand. Different countries, different jurisdictions measure in different ways. Um, I would like to think, actually, that if somebody reoffends in Jersey, they're very likely to get caught. Um, and the reason I say that is, is, is a safe island with a very low threshold in terms of crime. Um, and so although the rates appear high, um, I, I would expect that the clear-up rates are pretty, pretty high in Jersey as well. So we need to make sure that we're comparing comparing like for like where we make comparisons with other jurisdictions and there is some work to do around the existing data capture and how we capture that going forward um, and and that's not really something that I want to set on my own um, I'm the chair of the Jersey MAPA the multi-agency public protection agency and um, and I work very closely with probation and reducing reoffending um, as we kind of really shared at an event that we hosted in the prison last week, is everybody's um, business. And so when we set those targets, it really does rely on so many other agencies that, that that's a piece of work we need to do together. Can you just tell us a bit about um, what other agencies we want to get involved in this process of rehabilitation and also perhaps 
the wider um, kind of role that the community plays because often discussions of you know former prisoners coming back into the community can be quite quite heated quite divisive mm-hmm. it can sometimes generate fear so I wonder if you can tell us a bit about what what the not only agencies but the community can do to help with that process so we we hosted an event in the prison last Thursday um, with a number of ministers heads of department across government uh, third sector, so charitable organisations, um, to really explore under each of the pathways who needs to be involved in the solution. Um, and I guess when you ask about kind of the public, what what could they be doing? Um, some of the issues we have around a small island is that stigma when offenders are released and you Google their offence. But really looking at, at um, what ex-offenders can do, particularly when there's such a shortage of workforce, um, skilled workforce on the island. So we're working with customer and local services to make sure we're developing the skills that the island needs and really encouraging employers to consider employing ex-offenders and knowing that between us and the probation service, we can work with the employer and the ex-prisoner to talk openly about risk and how we manage risk. And really, we want to develop a culture on the island where it is prestigious to employ ex-offenders, where it is a trendy in the same way that genuine Jersey and local produce is a, is a real kudos. Looking at um, some of the companies in the UK, like Timpsons, Cook, who make the, the really high-quality um, freezer meals, um, and Greg's the Bakers, there is a real precedent in the UK for that being... Um, a celebrated uh, um, contribution to community. And we found that when we had employers, particularly around the construction industry at our event last week, they were genuinely interested in how they can benefit from that workforce, that trained workforce. And employing somebody that we know all about um, can be safer than employing somebody off the island who we can't necessarily do those background checks on. So really encouraging employers to have an open mind around um, employing ex-offenders. So you could see that being some kind of accreditation or something like that um, for local businesses? Yeah, there certainly needs to be a risk management process. Um, and in time, and we've, do, we've got to make sure that we get... That, that we do things in the right order. And, and there's um, timing's key in all of these changes. Um, but... In time, we have got aspirations. We've got a fantastic catering team in the prison, really good people who care about making a difference as well as just providing food. And um, we would like to develop a catering academy. We've been working with Highlands, looking at theirs and how we could duplicate with their support that type of facility um, so that we could invite employers into the prison. And um, part of the interview is actually being served by the prisoner um, and then potentially discussing a contract at that point and really looking at how we do that in a number of trades in the prison. Looking at um, the before offending, you mentioned very early on that a lot of criminal activity can be linked with things like childhood trauma. What can we do in that regard? What kind of preventative things can be done? Um, So, yeah, stopping the cycle of offending is so important. We know that offending runs in families, not always, but but a, a fair amount does. Um, And so that really comes under the children and families pathway and the way that we work with children now um, to build and maintain relationships with parents, the way that we upskill our prisoners in parenting, 
Um, and also working with other agencies who work with vulnerable children, for example, the NSPCC are really keen to work with us and advise us because we're not experts in children, we're experts in running prisons, but really making sure we are pulling the experts in and that we're meeting the needs of the child uh, as well as the prisoner. I know that family is one of the, the seven pathways. How, how do you bring the families themselves on board in this process? Um, it's really important and, and something that we've not done too well during COVID. Uh, no criticism at all to, to the, the prison. But um, it's, it's just been a very difficult, certainly the normal visits we've got used to have been difficult. And even when they've happened, it's been socially distanced. I must say that Jersey was ahead of the curve with um, what they call purple visits, which is virtual visits, which um, the UK copied from Jersey and Jersey absolutely led the way in purple visits and enabled prisoners to have really good quality uh, virtual visits, even during the height of the pandemic. But now we've reintroduced family visits. So they're really interactive events for children with their parents who are in prison. But increasingly, we can look at how, for example, if if a prisoner is at risk of self-harm or is going through uh, treatment for a mental health condition, um, how we, when I talk about multidisciplinary working, um, not only bringing in the, the, the professional experts, but sometimes the family is the expert and increasingly looking at how we pull the family into that case review um, and taking that opportunity to work through things together instead of causing that big divide that prison can sometimes cause. Finally, to wrap up, you're sort of six months into the role. In a year's time, what would you like to have ticked off or achieved? In a year's time, I would like to think that... um, the pathways are really properly embedded and that everybody who lives and works in the prison or in the community around the prison in terms of the agencies, that we have a common language around that. I'd like to think that we are really um, sharp at getting the needs assessment done at the beginning and plotting an offender's time. I'd like to think that we have a number of options for offenders on each of those pathways um, so that we can really build that bespoke kind of plan and that we have a real culture of making sure that we are working with offender and pushing them to do what they need to do as opposed to what they might want to do and that we have a shared understanding and are happy to have these difficult conversations about not necessarily asking a prisoner to do what they're already good at but potentially focusing on something that they're not so good at. Thank you, Susie Richardson. We'll be continuing to follow progress at the prison and you can read the latest updates on bailiwickexpress.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it. It all helps. The title track was I Shift My Weight by Luno. More next week from the Bailiwick Express team. (laughs) 